This is Dylan FM, the podcast that goes deep into the work and world of Bob Dylan. If you love Dylan, you're in the right place with your host, Craig Danuloff. In this episode, we're going to continue our talk with Michael Gray about the content in the new release of his Song and Dance Man book, Language and Tradition. As many of you know, Song and Dance Man was first released 50 years ago and has been updated several times, and it's widely praised as the best book on Bob Dylan ever written. Griel Marcus called it extraordinarily useful. Rolling Stone called it monumental. Christopher Ricks said it was immensely illuminating. The reason these and dozens of other top publications and nearly every Dylan freak in the world love it is because what Michael Gray does in this book is explain or unpack the writing, the singing, the performance, the exact things that we all love about Dylan, but most of us can't explain and really don't understand. Of course, Michael would never say that he explains Dylan. That's my word. But he certainly breaks down the techniques, relates what Dylan does to other artists and writers, and along the way reveals things about Dylan and these songs that certainly feel like revelations. In our podcasts, talking about chapters 1, 2, and 3, we talk through the book's analysis of how Dylan took from and related to folk music, literature, and rock and roll, respectively. We've seen there that in example after example, in each area, there were other artists whose work clearly educated and informed and influenced Bob Dylan. We've also seen how Dylan's timeline, the particular years in history when he was growing up and starting his career, had a very precise impact on what he was exposed to and therefore what he knew, who he knew, and how he was affected by the culture around him. To be clear, it's not like some magic trick is being revealed. What Bob did is still miraculous, and Michael Gray would be, and in fact was, the first to say so. But it also becomes evident that that work did not occur in a vacuum. As we've seen, there were dozens or hundreds or thousands of connections to the world around him, all of which makes Dylan much more interesting. Having this context can change the way you listen to Dylan and how you enjoy him, if you want it to. It gives us many threads to pull if we want to know or think about or investigate further. In this episode, we're starting chapter four. This chapter is about the journey Bob takes from singing linguistically simple folk songs in 1961 and 62 to singing complex and what are often called surrealistic songs by 65 and 66. As with anything Dylan, it's not a straight line. And again, the chapter is stuffed with context and examples and insights, which serve to give an even greater appreciation for the phenomenal evolution that Dylan went through in those five or six years. This part of the story is rich and compelling, and we couldn't even fit it into one podcast. So this is part one, and in part two, we'll finish our discussion of chapter four. After that, we'll move on to the Companion Chapter 5, which digs into how Dylan turned next to the language of simplicity on the albums that followed John Wesley Harding, Nashville Skyline, New Morning, and even the Basement Tapes. If you're reading along with us, that's great. But I think these work well to listen before or after reading. And just like the book, they may be things you want to revisit more than once. A link to the new edition of the book, which is available in paperback and Kindle at Amazon, 
is in the show notes. As before, we're going to go through this chapter talking and listening to excerpts before getting Michael's commentary. Our special guest reader for these two episodes is Anne-Margaret Daniel, Venetian Blonde online, and one of my favorite Dylan writers and people. Anne-Margaret teaches at the New School in NYC and at Bard College, and I'll link to a few of her spectacular pieces on Bob Dylan and her website where you can find even more. Trust me, these are things you'll want to read. Anne-Margaret has edited several volumes of F. Scott Fitzgerald, including the W.W. Norton edition of The Great Gatsby. Check her website out for details and links. If you're hearing this, you're listening to the public version of this episode. There's also an extended version, they're usually about twice as long, available to FM Plus subscribers. You can sign up for just $4.99 a month and get the full version of this and all of our episodes, plus member-only episodes as well. And to make it a great deal, that one price covers all the podcasts in the FM Podcast Network. You get extended editions, bonus episodes, and full archives for all of our shows. Plus, your subscription makes these great episodes possible. Subscribe right in the Apple Podcast app and get the longer episode right now. Or if you use another podcast player, visit fmpods.com to sign up. And now, here's my conversation with song and dance man author Michael Gray. We're talking about Chapter 4, Dylan's Use of Language towards complexity. This chapter is about the complexity in Dylan's language. And it was written to point out an evolution in the songwriting and how he you know, started one way, went another, uh, came back. And you, you sort of chart this course that winds up documenting what we'll see as a very short period uh, of, of the 60s. It's very short in terms of actual time. But in terms of um, the importance of Bob Dylan becoming Bob Dylan and changing the world of song, it's a very long period because there's so much in it, you know. The Bob Dylan of 1962 uh, does some great stuff. But by 1964, that's a long time away in, in existential terms, you know, because he has done so much already. And then from 64 to 65 and so on. You know, I mean, now we look back and it's like, you know, I, I was shocked quite recently to to realize that the um, that the 30th anniversary so-called celebration that Columbia Records did was 30 years ago and and that, that last 30 years well you know not much has happened in in many ways uh, obviously in other ways you know things get faster and faster but in terms of uh, Dylan's career you know his career has moved more slowly through the last 30 years, then it's impossible to compare that to the first 10 years in which so much happens, so much happens from from the guy who uh, breaks through with the extraordinariness of blowing in the wind 
at the time compared to what was the, the context. And then, you know, only, only three years later, it's 1965. And, and uh, look at what he's done in between. Uh, amazing. It's funny, as you talk about that, I was thinking it'd be interesting through some mathematical formula to normalize the periods. In other words, one unit is this amount of change. Yes. So like, you know, 2000 through 2007 is like an inch, but yes. August 62 to February 63 is seven units or something. Yes. Um, yeah. That's what this first, the first section of this chapter, and it's interesting because the chapter is about uh, complexity, but you start it by grounding in how we got there, which was, which was, you know, simplicity before. Um, and traditional. So and traditional song and then kind of tweaking traditional song. In some ways, he kind of, he does this in a very straightforward way, you know, a hard rain's going to fall comes from Lord Franklin. There's nothing particularly modern in the vocabulary of a hard rain's going to fall, and yet there's something extraordinarily contemporary when he comes out with it, especially at the time for those people who knew him as this little punk who stole their records and, uh, you know, drank too much Beaujolais and so on. How could that little guy, you know, come up with this amazing song? So, yes, at that point, there's, in 62, he's, uh, he's, he's already doing extraordinary things with traditional song and therefore with traditional language. But of course, one of the things I, I want to say about this chapter is it has the benefit of having started out and been largely created almost contemporaneously with the Dylan work. In other words, I, I'm writing this stuff in 1970, 71, published first in 72, 73. And so I've been living through this stuff as it arrived, as it was new. And therefore, you know, for me too, like for any young person, there's all the difference in the world between January and December of any yeah. particular formative year that you have. Um, and so when, when all this stuff is coming in new, hot off the presses, you're very um, unconscious of how short a space of time it is. What you're conscious of is how much change is happening so fast. Or, or, or just, uh, you know, this is a guy who is different all the time. Well, this is something that I'm sure that anyone would look at differently with 20 years, let alone 50 years. Um, yeah. It kind of takes some time to process. And the other thing for all of us, no matter how disciplined of a listener you are, is you, you listen to a jumble of Dylan. And there's a certain Dylan-ness yeah. in all of it. But, you know, you hear Honey, Give Me One More Chance, and you hear Hard Rain, and you hear Desolation Row, and all the steps in between, and your <clears> head's not bucketing them. Um, and right. so to go back and look at it and say, well, 60 through 62, let's call it, when he's playing kind of very simple folk and blues, the stuff, you know, largely on Bob Dylan with, with an exception or two, that's one thing. And as you say, especially, we, you know, the period we get the most analysis and review of people asking about others, like you say, who saw him around and said, well, you know, you saw what he was doing right before he recorded Bob Dylan and you saw what he was doing two years later. And they're all like, you know, yeah. some metamorphosis that's unexplained. 
Uh, it's one of the benefits now of, of being old. There aren't many, but you know the fact that the fact that you heard it in real time, and therefore you you paid attention to it in real time and had the chronology clear, very clear in your head. Yeah, that um, that's good stuff. There was a guy on Twitter last week or so who who um, was introducing himself to Dylan for the first time. And he had been oh, yeah. going, he had been going chronologically. And he said, I've listened, you know, I've listened to the first three albums and I've heard nothing else. And I kind of retweeted and said, what amazing discipline, but, you know, uh, compelling things you have ahead. Yes. <laughs> I mean, imagine to actually do that. Because yes. now, you know, we hear a lot from the younger fans who, you know, they take it as a virtue that it's a jumble, that it's yes. just all stuff. But there is something in, you know, imagine you've heard nothing but freewheeling, you know, Honey, Allow Me One More Chance, Boots of Spanish Leather, Times They Are Changing, God on Our Side, Hattie Carroll. You know, what I wrote here is masterful, but not complex in the term we're talking about today. And this is, as you say, you know, it's not the language or the words, and you're better to describe this than me, but it's the construction that as clearly sets them apart as some of the later techniques. But that's basically 63, 64. So this is where you you start by um, praising and highlighting examples where the non-complex language is special nonetheless. So here's our first excerpt from the book. I think the admirable David Horowitz accepts too readily that Dylan's articulacy is not so much individual as traditionally skillful. It assumes that Dylan's early work compliantly fits in his non-literal language according to the long-established literary rules. This isn't the case. If you look from the rules to the work Dylan has produced, you get entangled in listing Dylan's failures, or to put it another way, in emphasizing Dylan's lack of sophistication in handling language, or in defensively referring to his instinctive talents. Such entanglement will, re will reveal, in fact, not Dylan's faults, but a wrong perspective on the listener's or critic's part. Full as Dylan's work is of unsophisticated imagery, the success, the eloquence and impact of such language in Dylan's hands challenges any weighting of sophistication as an evaluative term. I, I can remember people at the time saying all this stuff, you know, how clumsy his his phrasing was or his language was um you know he was very unsophisticated um he uh, he wasn't uh he didn't polish his verses properly and and so on and um and obviously now and it seemed to me even at the time this was just uh looking through the wrong end of the telescope you know look at look at how successful that un unsophisticated work is. Uh, look at the virtue that comes from that clumsiness, that so-called clumsiness, you know. Um, and uh, and the chapter gives many examples of that, uh, uh, and obviously, you know, does so more more carefully and with greater precision than I can do sitting here now. But but yeah. It was part of his um, 
it was part of what was, you know, the 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 general sneering at him by people who thought they understood the purity of folk music, and of course anyone who uh, who was more inclined towards um, good literature. Yeah, you made the a version of this point last time we talked about uh, the fact that as educated as he was, the the word ain't was not used sloppily. It, it, it was it was intentional. So some comments now from another passage in the book about uh, Song to Witty, the Dylan original that we, we've talked about a little bit before. Dylan uses conventional, figurative language to equal effect in one of the very earliest of his published compositions, Song to Woody, where he takes the obvious but worthwhile step of personifying the funny old world which, quote, seems sick and it's hungry, it's tired and it's torn, looks like it's a dying and it's hardly been born. This ultra-simplicity of imagery is partnered frequently by an opposite sort of quality to one of overriding anger. Partnered, that is, by an understatement. There is no anger here, and nothing complex either, but the effectiveness is undeniable. But yeah, I mean, you know, a simple thing like um, taking the world to be like a person, talking about it as a person, seems sick and it's hungry, it's tired and it's torn, looks like it's the dying and it's hardly been born. You know, this is um, this is uh, technically called the pathetic fallacy, um, you know, where you the, the, the sun is shining benignly on you or, or the clouds are weeping, you know. I mean, these are conventional, these are conventional devices. Um, and Dylan, Dylan is using them conventionally, therefore, and yet he, man- he manages a freshness in the way that he does things. There's a, there's a, there's a, and there, there was a whole period actually, and I think I deal with this in the chapter, around 63, 64, uh, not all the songs that are on the albums, but um, there are a whole bunch of those songs where, where the night shatters walls crumble there's a there's 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 almost uh, a a sort of period in his writing where all those senses are mixed not in a kind of baudelairean uh, colors seem like sounds and all that stuff but just uh things bouncing off walls and uh, uh and this being his heartbeat uh, and so on. I mean, I think even even in that song about um, the one where he sings, he's playing his guitar and he's watching this girl in the room. How does what Dylan does with that in, in song to Woody, is that consistent in many of the songs he's covering at the time or is he adding a spark of something new there? I think he adds a spark of something new there. I mean, it just sounds, and it always did, it sounded quirkily him. The first Dylan esque. It's partly it's partly to do with how he delivers the line, of course. He delivers it better on that recording than in any time he's revisited it. Hey, hey, what he got three I wrote you a song. 
Had a funny old world that's a coming along. Seems sick and it's hungry, it's tired and it's torn. It looks like it's a dying and it's hardly been born. And you know, uh, we've talked before, I think, about how there are some things in Dylan which uh, they were so fresh at the time, it's impossible to rehear that freshness now. Uh, I know Harry Hugh. Uh, mentioned this in in his talk at the Dylan World of Dylan, um, and uh, and I've talked about it myself in uh, in other places. Um, you know, when you you hear a 1965 audience listening to Love Minus Zero No Limit, uh, and the simple thing of him saying, "People talk over situations, draw conclusions on the wall," the audience laughs. It's so fresh then. How would anyone who grew up later than that possibly find that so fresh as to be strikingly funny? You know, it wouldn't be, but it was then. And I think the same, the same kind of uh, slightly weird individual take on, on things is audible uh, and therefore in the lyric of even an early song like Song to Woody, yeah. Of course, that's a song we talked about in an earlier podcast, uh, the brilliance of that song. But um, but but uh, in terms of the, in terms of what we're talking about now, it uh, yeah, I think it's individually quirky. I mean, I can't I can't imagine anyone else singing that line about the world being seems like it's dying and it's hardly been born. If somebody more sophisticated sang it, it would sound patronizing. It would sound artificial. If somebody less savvy than Bob Dylan sang it, it might seem artificially cute. Let's look at Hollis Brown uh, a few years later as another example of a different kind of uh, effectiveness without complexity. Consider, too, the simple effectiveness of the imagery in his Ballad of Hollis Brown. Here, the words are so riveting and so didactically visual that Dylan can even afford to echo the nursery rhyme about the crooked man without this distracting us. You look for work and money, and you walk a ragged mile. You look for work and money, and you walk a ragged mile. Neither are we distracted when we come to an apparently histrionic analogy like this. Your wife's screams are stabbing like the dirty driving rain. The very lack of balance in the construction of that analogy enforces its realism. It is a way of the narrator saying, I understand your desperation, your imbalance. I'm not sure I explained that terribly well with that. The wife's screams are stabbing like the dirty driving, driving dirty rain. Does, does dirty driving rain feel like you're being stabbed when, you, when you're pushing your way through it? I don't know. But, but he risks it. He risks it because, uh, because obviously you, you could leave it at the wife's screams of stabbing you. But, you know, the song has to flow on. And, um, 
it's a it's a mixed metaphor, if you like. Um, but Dylan, it occurs to me now that that Dylan uses rain so effectively in so many songs. You know, even in a even in a far more recent um, and apparently trivial example, like um, where he talks about uh, the rain follows the train, and you kind of think, what? <laughs> And then, yeah, you know, sometimes you're on a train and the rain does follow. You know, it's it's not necessarily going in the opposite direction or splatting against the window, you know. He, he's, he's uh, uh, you know, you could, someone could write a, a learned thesis about Dylan's use of rain. I mean, obviously hard rain is, is, a, is a particular case. But here we have, you know, Hollis Brown. And as I say, yeah, it's um it's a there's a quirkiness to the way that Dylan messes up, if you like, rain and stabbing. Driving rain and 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 a scream that is stabbing. It's uh it's an odd combo. You wouldn't normally think of someone screaming. You can imagine, you know, it's a, it's fairly conventional to have to have it um a, a really piercing sound, like being stabbed by this sound, but um, but then to compare it to driving rain is is a whole other thing. The nursery rhyme thing, you know that one. There was a crooked man, and he walked a crooked mile. Bloody bloody blah. blah, blah. Uh, you know, and Dylan Dylan risks reminding you of that nonsense in a song which is uh, is designed to evoke the desperation of these starving people. It's brave. There's seven breezes blowing all around the cabin door. There's seven breezes blowing all around the cabin door. Seven shots ring out like the ocean's pounding roar There's seven people dead on a South Dakota farm There's seven people dead on a South Dakota farm Somewhere in the distance there are seven new people born Yeah, I, th- I think this song really stands out in many ways. It, it's, a, it's not actually been one of my favorite songs, and yet it's clearly extremely effective. Yeah. And, I and don't know anyone the- who would say it was, a fa- was one of their favorite <laughs> songs. But uh, but yeah, it's extremely effective. And, but all the way to uh, MTV Unplugged, I mean, and, and later it it you know he he didn't put it away despite I think it's very yeah. unique in the canon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the ending, of course, the the ending, the bleakness of the ending. You know, there's no there's no solace in the fact that somewhere's in the distance there are seven new people born, and the implication is they're going to have just as miserable a life as these people who are just ending their lives. 
But I think for the purpose of this, what we're talking about here, it's another example of without sophistication of language, Dylan finds other techniques to be, you know, effectiveness is the word you use here, but to, you know, to be compelling and communicative, we're setting ourselves up for the sophisticated language to come and showing he managed without it. So next one that you, you had mentioned a little bit already, but, and there's a long coverage in the book, but I'm just going to read a little bit about, about hard rain. Cause it's another one where you dissect the techniques that did into reliance sophistication that are yet compelling. As for a hard rains are going to fall, it is true that to a very large extent, Dylan's use of images is dictated by a tradition, but it surely builds to a distinctive whole. Line upon line, the pictures are piled up, some containing their own moral via paradox. I saw a newborn babe with wild wolves all around it. I saw guns and sharp swords in the hands of young children. Heard one person starve. I heard many people laughing. The most interesting thing, perhaps, in terms of Dylan's achievement is that although the fifth verse draws morals almost specifically, although the deliberate fragmentedness of the other verses does fit into a cohesive moral theme, the effectiveness of this theme still depends on the pictures rolling past, as if on and then off a screen, without opportunity of recall. In other words, there is a simple, strange sense in which for the song as a whole to succeed, each image within it asserts a segregated life of its own. Yeah, you know, in other words, in some lines, you get the you get the contrast within one line. Newborn babe with wild wolves all around it. Other times it takes two lines to say that. Um, but in each case, you know, he is uh he is following one thing with another. It's a list song. I mean, he's good at list songs, but uh, and some people feel they're rather e- that's a rather easy way of writing a song, you know. Uh, everything is broken. Might not be, you know, the most magnificent and sophisticated achievement of Dylan's career, but um, but uh, but in this case, there's something so powerful uh, about the sort of the implication that this is visionary. This song, and and that is achieved by the way that. Bang, 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 line after line, verse after verse, you know. Um, what did you hear? Blah, blah, blah. What did you see? Uh, and uh, I don't know now how if, how much I agree with the idea that uh, that one thing has to sort of disappear immediately from your consciousness in order to hear the next bit. Thanks for listening to this part of this episode. We hope you'll consider becoming an FM Plus subscriber to hear the full version of this and all of our shows. Sign up in the Apple Podcasts app or at fmpods.com. Did you enjoy this show? Then please rate this podcast and leave a review. It really helps. And take a moment to follow this podcast so you don't miss upcoming episodes. Thanks for listening.